please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John in chapter 8. We'll be continuing in our regular exposition of John's Gospel. We'll be reading this morning, verses 31 through 59. I'll just mention it was not included in uh, the bulletin. We actually do have a scheduled missions prayer meeting tonight at 5.30. We'll be gathering here back at the church. All are welcome to attend that time. Uh, that will be downstairs in the Blue Room, 5.30, uh, missions prayer. We will be hosting this evening uh, John Bourgeois, who is the Canvas Director of RUF at Wake Forest. And so he'll be telling us ways in which we might partner with that ministry and minister to students on that campus. So that'll be tonight at 5.30. Please follow along as I read John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you were offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, as we come before your word now, be with us and help us. Assist us in the great task that is before us of receiving your word and letting it have its free reign within our hearts. Do a work among us, we pray, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. I speak of the state of evangelical Christianity in 2019. If someone asked me if if I could choose any time in church history uh, in which to live, someone asked that question, I would actually say, right now. I would want to be living in 2019, serving Christ and ministering among His church. To be a Christian and to be ministering at this time in church history is exciting. God is doing things in the world that should thrill us when we witness and contemplate what God is doing across the globe in the work of global missions, when we consider the explosion of church planting in America, or the unprecedented success of ministerial training institutions in the West, there is a lot to be excited about in 2019. And yet at the same time, we live in the worst of times. There are many things that ail evangelicalism today. As one studies church history just in the last three to four hundred years in the West, you can't help but appreciate some significant points of contrast between Christians today and the saints gone before that we sung about in that last song. Christians of previous generations were certainly more serious and thoughtful about doctrine than we are today. They took church commitment far more seriously than Christians tend to today. The need to cultivate personal piety and godliness seemed to be more significant to them than to us today. And Christians of previous generations were also marked by a greater familiarity with and commitment to the Bible than we tend to be today. And increasingly, I'm appreciating the more I study and teach the Bible, that one of the things that marks us off from churches and saints of previous generations is our appalling lack of familiarity with the Old Testament. Its important figures and events are foreign to us. Its significance for Christian life and doctrine is obscured in our day. In fact, even to suggest that the Old Testament has relevance for Christian life and practice today is ruled out completely by some. Even some who profess Christ consider the Old Testament to be a dead document. One of the reasons why a lack of familiarity with the Old Testament is so dangerous is that by failing to understand it, we fail to understand the New Testament. The more we study the New Testament, the more we should appreciate how crucial a solid grasp of the Old Testament is to make almost any sense at all of the New Testament. I believe that one of the many medicines that Christians in 2019 need is a resurgence of commitment to and study of the Old Testament. 
Now, in the Old Testament, there are certain high points that seem to take precedence and also shape and provide structure to the rest of the Bible's narrative. One of those high points is the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant becomes one of the engines that drives the redemptive storyline of the Bible. And few figures rise to the level of importance in Israel's history as Abraham. He's prominent in the Old Testament where his story is told, and he's even prominent in the New Testament where much of the significance of his story is explained. He's mentioned in each one of the gospel accounts, multiple times actually. He's mentioned many times in the book of Acts. He has a prominent place to play in Paul's letters to the Romans and to the Galatians. He's a central player in the book of Hebrews. Few figures rise to the level of importance as Father Abraham. So what is the big deal about Abraham? Well, by far, the episode in Abraham's life that receives the most attention in Scripture has to do with the covenant that God made with Abraham. God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham. Now, this covenant is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 12. It's repeated in some form or fashion in Genesis 15, 17, and 22. Now, this covenant included three central promises. Number one, God made the promise to Abraham that he would have a seed, a son, that through that son, his descendants would be as great as the number of sands on the seashore, that he would have a number of descendants greater than the stars in the sky. In fact, Abraham is asked to count the stars, and he's told that your descendants will be greater than the number of the stars. The second promise that God made to Abraham is a promise of land, uh, actual physical land in the short term, but in the new covenant, it's opened up to be the whole earth. The Bible teaches that God's new covenant people will one day inherit the earth. And the third promise, perhaps the most important promise that God made to Abraham, is that through his seed, singular, through a, a particular descendant, a particular son to come at a later time, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God was going to bring salvation and deliverance and blessing not only for the Israelite people, for all the nations of the world. And he was going to do it through Abraham's seed. You can imagine being Abraham, well advanced in years, in his 90s. Just seems so unbelievable to think that he could even have a son in his lifetime, let alone that all the nations of the world would one day be blessed through his descendants. Well, these promises made to Abraham were central to Israel's self-consciousness as a people. God had made promises to their fathers, and limitless hope was bound up in these promises. Every Jew would be familiar with the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And every Jew was clinging to the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And it's these promises that are in the background of our text this morning. They're not plainly stated, but they do form a large part of the context of the conversation Jesus has with these Jews. So if you don't understand this background, you hear these Jews and then Jesus talk about Abraham and you're thinking, where did that come from? What does he really have to do with anything? But if you appreciate the significance of the Abrahamic covenant, well, then you understand this has everything to do with Jesus and everything to do with these Jews. So this morning now, what I want to do is consider two major points from this text, two main headings. We want to consider together, first of all, the Jews' relationship with Abraham 
and with God. These Jews in particular. Their relationship with Abraham and with God. And then secondly, Jesus' relationship with Abraham and with God. Just two points this morning. Consider with me first the Jews' relationship with Abraham and with God. Let's look first at their relationship with Abraham. These Jews plainly believe that Abraham is their father. They say so in verse 39. Abraham is our father. Now, why do they believe that? Why do they say that? Well, because biologically speaking, they are actual descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. And they have embraced the sign of Abraham, which is circumcision. And thus they understood themselves to be connected to all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of descendants and a nation, the promise of land, and the promise of this seed through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. They say, we have Abraham in our family tree. We're sons of Abraham. We are the inheritors of all those great promises that were given to the fathers all those years ago. Now, Jesus is going to grant them their physical offspring from Abraham. He says in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. On one level, they are Abraham's children, namely on the physical level. But then, Jesus calls their descendants from Abraham into question on the spiritual level, the level that really matters. So in one sense, sure, they are descendants. But in the most meaningful sense, they're not. And it takes a while for the Jews to understand exactly what Jesus is communicating. We've seen this so many times in John's gospel, right? Jesus communicating on one level, and his interlocutors are communicating on another. John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. What does Nicodemus say? So I have to enter back inside my mother's womb and be born a second time? How can a man do that? Jesus is here, Nicodemus is here. John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, I will give you living water if you ask for it. And she goes, great, where's the address where I could find the spring where living water comes from? He's talking about eternal life there, but she thinks he's talking about physical water. John chapter 6, do not labor for the bread that perishes, but for the bread that endures to eternal life. And the crowds follow him because they want to fill their stomachs with some bread. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You need something so much greater than that. You need me. Well, here he's doing that again. You are descendants of Abraham, and you are not descendants of Abraham. Look with me at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Jesus is essentially saying, That those who are truly children of Abraham are those who imitate Abraham's faith in God and walk in the obedience that that faith produces. Faith in God is the issue. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham recognized God's voice and responded with faith and obedience. And now Jesus, the Son of God, is standing there. God's voice is once again going forth. And here are these Jews, and rather than responding with faith and obedience, they're seeking to kill him. Thus, Jesus can say, Abraham did not do this. If you were children of Abraham, you'd respond like Abraham did. You'd act like your daddy, who when he heard the voice of God, responded with faith and responded with obedience. But you don't respond that way. How can you be Abraham's children? 
Now this introduces a huge theme in the New Testament. See, those who are truly Abraham's children are understood to be those who embrace Christ by faith. The Apostle Paul, later on, is abundantly clear on this point. Let me read just a few statements from Paul. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, he says this sort of enigmatic statement. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You could be an Israelite and not be an Israelite. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You could be his offspring, not be his children. Okay, so he says something much more clear in Galatians chapter 3. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like or just listen to me read. Galatians 3 verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, this is amazing, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, when was the gospel preached to Abraham? Like the good news that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, in human flesh to live a sinless life, to go to the cross, to die for the sins of his people, and to rise again the third day, and to be seated at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercessions for his people. When in the world was that message preached to Abraham? We know in some sense it was preached to him. This is what Paul goes on to say. That he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and then he quotes from Genesis 22, in you shall all the nations be blessed. In your seed shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In other words, Abraham was to look ahead to this coming one, to this coming seed, this coming son, this coming descendant, this coming offspring, this coming Messiah. And in that Messiah, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He may not have known all the details that we, of course, know now looking back on the cross, but the very basics of that good news, that there was one who was going to come from the line of Abraham, and he was going to bring blessing and deliverance and salvation to his people, he knew that. He had the gospel preached to him. And so Paul goes on to say, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. The idea is that if you don't have faith, you cannot be Abraham's descendants. At least not the kind of descendants that matter. You may be his physical offering, but unless you have faith, you are not his true children. So Jesus is saying for these Jews, their biological connection to Abraham means nothing whatsoever. But whatever the Jews make of Jesus' argument, they don't really follow up on it. Sort of goes past them, maybe. Instead, they raise the stakes. They shift the attention away from their standing with Abraham to their standing with Yahweh, with God. Surely Jesus would not deny them God as their father. After all, they're Jews. They're God's special people. The promises were made to them. He wouldn't do that, would he? Let's consider now the Jews' relationship with God. In verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Let me just stop there. 
a lot of people speculate as to what they mean there. It's possible, many commentators think, that they're making some sort of jab at Jesus. We were not born of sexual immorality. Jesus, of course, was born of a virgin, but no one then would really have believed in the virgin birth, and it would have been thought perhaps Jesus was the product of a premarital sexual relationship. We were not born of sexual immorality. I don't think that's what they're talking about. I think they're offended by what Jesus has just said, suggesting that their father is not Abraham. And they're saying, are, are you saying someone else is our father? You know, like, like we intermingled with the nations or something like that? Like we're bastards because Abraham is not our father? Is that what you're suggesting to us? I think that's more the idea. But anyway, uh, Jesus says, or they say to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Ironically, this is precisely the claim Jesus made in John 5 that incites the Jews to want to kill him, but I don't think these Jews see that irony. Now these Jews are saying, we have God as our Father. We're Israelites. We're his chosen people. We're the heirs of the covenant promises. We have God, Jehovah, Yahweh as our Father. Jesus says, you're fooling yourself. The basic argument Jesus is going to make is that if God was their Father, then they would recognize Jesus as God's son, God's emissary. And more than that, they would love him. They would embrace him. They would receive him by faith. If they truly knew God, then when they see Jesus before them, they would say like Thomas says in John 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. That's the response of faith from everybody who stands in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. My Lord and my God. But that's not the response on the lips of these Jews. Jesus' argument is you, you clearly do not know God because you don't recognize God's Son is before you. So he says, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Let's go down to verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God or not God's children. The idea is if you really know God, like experientially, like you have a relationship with him, you know something of his nature and his character and his attributes, and you've had communion with the living God, then you must recognize God in Jesus. Again and again, Jesus showed himself to be God he said the things that only God would say in his teaching and in his words. You might remember back in John 7, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they send officers to arrest Jesus, and they're right there. They got the handcuffs, and he's standing right in front of them in the middle of a crowd. And rather than arresting him, they go home packing. Why do they do that? The Pharisees say, well, why didn't you make the arrest? What do they say? No one ever spoke like this man. You weren't there. You didn't hear what he said. No one ever spoke like this man. Jesus demonstrated that he was God through his many signs and his miracles. Even Nicodemus recognized this, not to the fullest degree, but he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know no one can be doing the things you're doing unless God is with him. There were things Jesus was doing that only God himself would do. He evidenced a relationship with the Father that only the Son of God could possess. He spoke about the cosmos, 
He spoke about the beginning of the world. He spoke about creation. He spoke about light. He spoke about life. He spoke about redemptive history and claimed to be its author and its climax. Who talks like that with such authority, such knowledge, saying that everything the Old Testament looked forward to is now embodied in me? He spoke as one who had been in the throne room of God himself and who not only was the focal point of redemptive history, he was the author of redemptive history. He was the one who set the plan in place. And yet these Jews do not detect anything of God in Jesus. And so Jesus' argument is that the only reasonable conclusion is that they must not really know God at all. If they recognized, if they knew the Father, they would know the Son. So for these Jews, Jesus argues they cannot truly be Abraham's children, and they're certainly not God's children. The argument has been you don't act like children of Abraham and you don't act like children of God, but there is someone you are imitating. You are someone's child. Jesus says, verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Just stop there. It's not in the notes. Satan, the devil, is pure, unalloyed, ferocious, vicious, pernicious, evil. In his teeth are the blood of little children. He is the embodiment of evil itself. And there are some people who sort of make a game of Satan. There are some people who dabble with Satanism and the occult and want to be titillated by that and play all kinds of games with that sort of thing. Let me tell you, Satan's desire is to wreck you and ruin you. He will use you. He will abuse you. And he will have you if you open that door to him. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And we should hate him. And we should resist him. Verse 45, but because I tell the truth, Jesus says, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What makes these Jews children of Satan? It is their willful determination to reject the truth and their desire to kill Jesus, God's son. That sounds a lot like Satan. Liar. Anti-truth. And murderer. They seek to kill God's son. This is Jesus' words. Your relationship to Abraham and to God are ultimately measured by your response to Jesus. He would say to us even today, don't make a pretense of being right with God when you do not embrace his son. Jesus is not impressed by your family lineage. You could have Abraham in your family tree. It doesn't matter. If you don't recognize and embrace Jesus, you have no claim to Abraham or God as your father. Moreover, Jesus is saying to deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, which is the very purpose this gospel was written so that people would believe that. To deny that is satanic to the core. This is the very work of Satan. 
2 Corinthians 4, 3 says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's a reference to Satan, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the work of Satan, to keep people from seeing Jesus. Parents, you pray for your kids. You are praying against the activity of the evil one. You pray for your unconverted parents and relatives. You are praying for God to work against the work of Satan. You're praying to oppose him. The work of Satan is to keep people from believing in Jesus. And he's apparently having a field day with these Jews in John 8. Well, now secondly, and more briefly, and far more importantly, consider with me Jesus' relationship with Abraham and his relationship with God. First of all, Jesus' relationship to Abraham. Let's read verses 48 through 56. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's very sophisticated. I know you are, but what am I? That's basically their response to Jesus. Verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. And then here's the connection to Abraham. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What exactly Jesus is referring to here is not opened up in the text. In what sense did Jesus see, or excuse me, Abraham see Jesus' day and rejoice? Again, commentators speculate. It could be that maybe this is a reference to Isaac. You know, Isaac was the promised seed. He's born, and that's like a typology of Jesus. Or maybe it's a reference to the ram in the thicket when Abraham's going to sacrifice his son, and God provides a ram. There's an allegory there, and that's sort of like seeing Jesus' day. And I think that's all speculation. I think we should say the most simple and basic thing, though. We should say what Paul says in Galatians 3. That Abraham had the gospel preached to him through a covenant. There was going to come a seed in whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Abraham looked ahead to this, this coming one, this coming son, this coming descendant who would one day come and he would vindicate God's promises and he would be a light to the world. And in him all the nations of the world, not just the Israelite people, not just the Jews, but every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would be blessed through him. In other words, what is Abraham's relationship to Jesus? Jesus is Abraham's Messiah. He's Abraham's Christ. He is the coming one, the long-looked-for Savior, the long-anticipated Messiah, the seed, the son, the descendant who would come and through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. 
So am I greater than Abraham? You better believe I'm greater than Abraham. I'm Abraham's Savior. I'm Abraham's Christ. I'm Abraham's Messiah. I ain't looking back to him. He was looking forward to me. And he saw my day through that promise. And he rejoiced and was glad. Now finally, what was Jesus' relationship to God? Continue again, beginning in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John 8 and verse 58 amounts to the paramount claim of divinity by Jesus in John's gospel and in all of the Bible. You will not find a clearer, more unequivocal claim to Godship, Godhood, on the lips of Jesus than these words, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you don't know the Old Testament, you read that and you think there must be a typo or something. Shouldn't it say, if he wants to prove that he's better than Abraham, before Abraham was, I was. Like, I was preexistent. After all, John already said that in John 1, right? He was in the beginning with God. He had a hand in creating the world. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And it's those two words, I am. Ego eimi in Greek, ahaya in Hebrew. It's those words that end the discussion. And it's those words that incite these Jews to brutalize him by stoning him to death for blasphemy. Why? Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, Ahaya asher ahaya, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. I am has sent me to you. Jesus takes to himself the most profound statement of Yahweh's self-identity in the Old Testament, and he claims it for himself. Sometimes people will ask, if, if you could witness one moment in the Bible, go back in time and watch one moment, maybe it would be the parting of the Red Sea or... Elijah against the prophets of Baal. This might be it for me. When Jesus uttered these words, the drama, the authority, the power, Ahaya, Asher, Ahaya. And they pick up stones to stone him because they know exactly what he's saying. He's taking to his lips the most profound statement of divine self identity in the scriptures. And that's blasphemy. And for that, he must be stoned. Am I greater than Abraham, Jesus says? You better believe I'm greater than Abraham. I'm Abraham's Messiah. What's more than that, I'm Abraham's God. Before Abraham was, ego eimi, ahaya, I am. And all of a sudden, 
all of the Old Testament content of those words is imported to Jesus. All that stuff you saw I am doing in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. All the stuff that God did on behalf of his people Israel and delivering them from slavery in Egypt, that's I am. That's Jesus at work for his people. Abraham's Christ and Abraham's God. You know the purpose of John's gospel, right? These things have been written that you may believe, say it with me, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. The sole purpose of the gospel. He was Abraham's Messiah. He's Abraham's God. And he can be your Messiah. And he can be your God. If you believe him as the great I am. And if you embrace him by faith. This is the message of John's gospel. You cannot have a Jesus who is anything less than God. Anything less than I am. You must ascribe to the Son everything you give to the Father by way of divinity. Colossians 1, verse 15, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To Jesus belongs everything that belongs to God. To Jesus, the Son, belongs everything that belongs to the Father. I don't mean to be crass, but we need to stop treating Jesus like God light. Like junior God or something like that. He is the great I am. He is the son of the living God. He was in the beginning with God and he was God. Give me big thoughts of Jesus. Lofty thoughts of Jesus. God thoughts of Jesus. I am thoughts of Jesus. That's our Savior. That's our Messiah. That's our Christ. So you pray to Jesus. You are praying to God. You take Jesus' name in vain. You take God's name in vain. You talk about your buddy friend Jesus. You're talking about God incarnate, the great I am. You sing Jesus' name in a song, you are singing God's name in a song. You put your faith in Jesus, you're putting your faith in God like Abraham. You reject Jesus, you are rejecting God like the Jews, whose father is really Satan. So what have we seen this morning? The Jews make a pretense of being the offspring of Abraham. They had the blood in their veins, but they didn't have the faith. How could they be Abraham's children, Jesus says. They believe they're God's children. God says, or Jesus says, God is standing before you, and you're not receiving him. How can you be God's children? What was Jesus' relationship to Abraham and to God? He is Abraham's Messiah. What's more than that, he's Abraham's God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I am who I am is ascribed to Jesus. 
Now you say, that's all very great and very grand. And I learned some new things today about how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate. Learned some things about Abraham maybe I didn't know. And um, some things about redemptive history that are very interesting. But I've had a really bad week. And if I don't get something today, I'm going to have another really bad week. There are things going on internally you don't know about that I'm just struggling with. And I need a blessing today. That's all high-flung and lofty and interesting, but what does that mean for me? Well, I want to help you. John 8 is a profoundly negative passage. Jesus is speaking in the face and the teeth of rank opposition. He's speaking to children of Satan who do not believe him, and the chapter ends with them trying to kill him. It's not like a, a warm and tender, fuzzy kind of passage. But there are promises in John 8 that are made to would-be disciples that are very precious. And I want you to remember them. John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, verse 31, 32, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, verse 51, if you keep my word, you will never see death. Those are precious promises, like stake your life on sort of promises. Well, how can you believe them? How can you trust that they're true? Look who's talking to you. It's not some man. These promises, these blessings are secured by I am. The true and living God secures these things for his people. You say, I have some dark corners in my heart and some dark passages God is calling me through. You have Jesus, I am. You have the light of life. You could take that into this week to confront the darkness you face. You say, I feel in bondage to things in my heart, my inward life. Not bondage to Egyptian overlords, but bondage to sin at times. And there's that sin that so easily ensnares us and enslaves us. Jesus says, if you know me and abide in my word, if you have Jesus Christ as your Messiah, your God, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. There are some people here, young and old, who are very afraid of dying. I'm not proud to admit it. I'm afraid of dying. What does I am say? You keep my word. You believe on me. You'll never see death. Your heart will stop beating. But you'll never see death. You're going to live forever if you have Christ as your Savior. Now, we talked about Exodus 3, right? Who sends you? It's I am who sends you. What happens in Exodus 3? God goes forward to fight for his people. He pours out his wonders on all the land of Egypt. I am goes before Moses and before the Israelites. And these 
miraculous wonders and miracles and signs are performed in the land of Egypt. And there's that last one, of course, the great Passover, where blood is sprinkled over the door, the angel of death comes through, and the Israelite firstborn sons are saved, and of course the Egyptian sons are destroyed. And it's finally then that God breaks the hard heart of Pharaoh, and he lets his people go. But then fickle Pharaoh relinquishes, and he pursues the Israelites to the sea. And there they are, trapped between the coming Egyptian hordes and the sea. What will I am do now? Well, he parts the waters. And he makes a passage through the sea for his people to walk through. I can only suspect that some Israelites pass through those waters like this. We're going to die, 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 we're going to die. We're going to walls of water on either side. And there are others who said, look at this. Look at what Yahweh has done. Look at our God. He made a way through the sea. Look at this. And they skipped their way through to salvation and deliverance. They both made it to the other side. They both made it. And now here, hundreds and hundreds of years later, I am standing before these people. And he's talking to them in this text about another type of freedom from bondage. It's no coincidence that he references the Exodus in this passage. There's another type of bondage, an internal bondage, not a bondage to slave owners from Egyptian overlords, a bondage to sin and to Satan and to wrath and to hell. And Jesus says, I am can make you free. And if you believe in me, you will never see death. There are some who fear. Can I really be free from sin? Can I really have light shine into my darkness? Can I really pass through death? To those who fear, I want to say two things. Even though you fear, your safety, your salvation, your deliverance does not depend on your courage. It depends on I am who goes before you and secures all the promises of the gospel for you. But secondly, for those who fear, you don't have to. Isn't it a wonderful thing? In the Christian life, there is never a good reason to be afraid. Never. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we pray the words that we sung earlier in the song taken from Psalm 42. Be our vision in the night. Be our hope 
and refuge. Until our faith is turned to sight, help our hearts to praise you. Deliver us, we pray, from sin and from Satan and all of his evil devices. Give us faith to know that you have secured for us all the glorious promises of the gospel, light instead of darkness, freedom instead of slavery, and life instead of death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.